We use the word shaman because sometimes when we describe Nawal, people don't know what that means. So shaman is the closest thing to it. Nawal is a Nahuatl word. It could mean spiritual leader, a spiritual guide. But in our family, we mostly use it as the force that animates matter. Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. is quite the force, as we'll soon hear on this episode of Dropping In from Omega Institute, a podcast that explores the many ways to awaken the best in the human spirit. I'm Karen Michelle. Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. was at Omega to teach a week-long workshop he called The Mastery of Self, the same title as one of his books. The idea should sound familiar, whether you frequent shamans or not. Know thyself, and that self is mutable, perhaps especially for someone from a family of shamans. The ability to change, to shift, can be reflected in something as seemingly mundane as a name. Well, my name is uh, Miguel Angel Ruiz Jr. I go by the name Don Miguel Ruiz. And I tend to go by various names, uh, Miguel, Mikey, and Papa, you know, and Honey, and Lovey. That, that, that tends to encapsulate me. Um, but Miguel's perfectly fine. His family is key for Miguel. He refers to them throughout his teaching. My grandmother still continues to be the spiritual head of this family, as my father is as well. The, the masculine and the feminine are all one. So for me, the purpose of this week is to, well, teach you faith from a point of view of our family tradition. Faith in yourself, faith in life. Awareness is the constant communion with the environment that surrounds you and the constant communion within you. For us, the Toltec tradition, the work we do is to heal the wounds that conditional love left in our hearts and in our minds. But here's the thing. The journey tends to be an individual journey, a journey within ourselves, an inward journey. But we don't live isolated in a hill. We don't live isolated in an ashram or um, we don't live isolated in a monastery. We live in our everyday life. How to stay in our discipline as we engage our everyday life. So you can say that's where the book, The Mastery of Self, comes in. That book is meant, as well as the five levels of attachment, to be able to stay in our inward journey and still be able to function in our everyday society, in our everyday dreams, in our relationships with every people. Because here's the thing. We are the constant in every relationship that we are in. If I have conditional love for myself, then I've got nothing but conditional love to give to everyone. But if I have unconditional love for myself, then I constantly am the constant opportunity for unconditional love in every relationship that I am in. Whether that other person loves me unconditionally, whether that person loves me conditionally, that's up to them. I don't control their will, I don't control their perceptions, but I do control my half of the relationship. To a certain degree, the essence of all the work we've done, my father, myself, and my brother, Don Jose Luis Ruiz, who's right here, has been geared towards that. And it's something that my grandmother, in her own unique way, worked for many, many years in trying to heal. As a faith healer, she healed a lot of people's physical ailments, emotional ailments, spiritual ailments, and she enjoyed sharing that. So you can say we're continuing that tradition. Tradition. 
a weighted word implying old, validated, or at least repeated enough to be received as truth, a truth kept by custom, ritual, legend. There's a faith in the inherent importance of tradition, but when we spoke, Miguel said it needn't be necessarily so. We can be skeptical of our tradition. If I was fanatical, then I would say, yes, and I'm not going to question what Don Ezequiel said. I'm not going to question that it came from that. No, we're going to be skeptical because anything can change. You know, that, that, that's, that, uh, that exercise of the telephone, if you put everyone in a, in a row and you whisper into someone's ear, what are the chances that it'll change by the end of the, uh, the, that, that line? You have to give it that kind of scrutiny. Is it true? Is it really? And being part of our tradition, to be skeptical, we have to give Don Ezequiel and Leonardo and all of them that, 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 well, that question. It's, it's important because it's what keeps us from being fanatical. That being said, what, ma- what's, what matters? Uh, why should one believe me? And the question is, no, you shouldn't. But in listening to what I'm saying, somewhere in what we say lies the truth. What matters there is what resonates, how we're using the terms. That's the thing about oral tradition. It's uh, as we give it scrutiny, sometimes it may the, the link may not be there. Sometimes the information be something different. Definitions change. So what we have is what we've got. That's one of the things about living in a world where everything changed. Your whole world got uprooted, and you're trying to figure out and keep and salvage, and it's no longer in print. It's shared from story to story to story. So the way my father has taught us and my grandmother, and I'm going to quote my grandma on this one. If you follow the Totec tradition the way your father or I do it, you're killing the tradition. you got to do it your own way. And that's because life will teach you in your own unique way. So what we teach, we teach from, with one, that awareness of giving scrutiny. Is it true or not? That's definitely there to give scrutiny. And we totally honor it. But we also manage the information and we apply it in our lives and it's taught us something. And what we share comes from those lessons in particular. So a lot of times when we tell our stories, it's our stories because it's we are applying the stories, we're applying the lessons in our life. And this is how life reflected back to us. And we're putting it in our own words, that which we've learned, which I'm not going to use Don Ezequiel's exact wording because I don't know it. Uh, I've li- Little by little, I've been able to discover which lessons came from my grandmother, Sarita, and which ones came from Don Leonardo, which one came from my father, which came from my brother. Little by little, we were able to distinguish that because as my father, myself, and my brother teach together, we start telling each other stories in our own unique way. You know, I, I, I'm, And sometimes you, in order to pr- uh, give a lesson to put a point or give a point, you use the instruments you have at your disposal, and that's the lessons we have. There's a famous film from 1950 by Akira Kurosawa, Rashomon, that, well, examines the nature of truth as recounted by four people who witness the same scene. A scene each has seen and tells others about differently. The ability of people to receive and recount truth through such individual lenses became known as the Rashomon effect. Perhaps updated or differently related, it's the Miguel effect. So, yes, I encourage people to give us scrutiny, to be skeptical of what we say. Uh, 
what we're asking also is to listen. Somewhere in what we say lies the truth. It's actually, oddly enough, when we became an apprentice of my father, that was the rules. There was three rules. He said, don't believe me. And I said, done, easy. And he said with that smile, yeah, but listen to what I say. Somewhere when I say lies the truth, because you don't know where I learned it from. I might have learned it from a, a fake news account or something like that. Question what I say, but learn to listen. Somewhere what I say lies the truth. And if you understand this concept, then you can understand the next one. Don't believe yourself for the same reasons. You don't know where you learned it. Give it scrutiny, but learn to listen. You'll find the truth somewhere in there if you do. Which leads us to the third rule, which we've got to imagine, don't believe anyone else, but learn to listen. The thing about it is learn to listen because it opens the channels of communication. So when we teach, we're teaching our experiences, which is our own unique, and it's only true to us, to be honest with you. And those teachings may resonate with someone and that might help them. There'll be more of Don Miguel Ruiz Jr.'s teachings on finding truth, our own truth. But first, a word about Omega Institute for Holistic Studies. For more than 40 years, Omega has been hosting workshops and retreats on yoga, mindfulness, art, sustainability, women's leadership, health. It's a rich mix. And with this podcast, I'm introducing you to some of the remarkable teachers exploring Omega's mission to awaken the best in the human spirit. Don Miguel Ruiz Jr.'s workshop was one of more than 350 programs offered every year on Omega's beautiful campus. It is nestled in New York's Hudson Valley. To learn more about Omega, visit eomega.org. That's E-O-M-E-G-A dot O-R-G. Better yet, make this podcast your entry point to all things Omega. Subscribe to Dropping In, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and tell a friend. Now back to Miguel and a foundation of his teaching, the five levels of attachment. In the introduction to his book on the five levels of attachment, Miguel calls them guideposts for gauging how attached we are to any particular belief, whether ours or someone else's. That perception requires awareness, so that, as he puts it, we can, quote, regain the power to make our own decisions. Let's call the flower awareness. Awareness is just simply this constant communion with the environment that surrounds me and within myself. I am aware of my present moment, my present space, my present self. Let's just call this awareness. And let's imagine this flower called awareness completely open. Level one, the authentic self. I am a living being who has the full capacity to go in any direction in life. Yes, I am the sum of every decision that I've ever made but at the same time, I'm the youngest I will ever be. I have my whole life ahead of me. I can go in any direction in life. It's easier to see the infinite possibility when you hold a newborn baby in your arms. When I held my son, when I held my daughter, 
I'm looking into a living being that could become anything, a doctor, a lawyer, an activist, an artist, a soccer player. Because I'm looking into the eyes of someone who has their whole life ahead of them. It's easy to see that infinite possibility when you hold that newborn baby. Well, 42 years ago, my father held me in his arms and he saw the infinite possibility in me. The difference between that child that my father held in his arms 42 years ago and the man that's sitting in front of you today, besides the fact that I grew up physically and mentally, is that I know how to use this body and I know how to use this mind. But I'm still that infinite possibility because I am alive. I am alive in this body, I'm alive in this mind. And for as long as I'm alive, anything's possible. And I'm aware of that. When I held my uncle's hand and he passed away, I became very, very aware of my own mortality. That one day I will be dead. But the difference between the inanimate object that this body that's in front of you will be as inanimate as that table if you don't add quantum physics to that, of course, is that this body in front of you is alive. I'm alive to dance. I'm alive to engage. I'm alive to look you in the eye and say, hello, I'm alive. And while I'm alive, anything is possible. So level one, the authentic self, I'm a living being regardless of what I think, regardless of what I know, I'm aware that I'm alive. And the authentic self is just a name. And of course, I'm saying that from the point of view of the individual point of view. That is Miguel Ángel Ruiz Jr. I am alive. There is harmony within me. There's harmony with life that is eternal and harmony with the individual that is in front of you. That is level one. If the term authentic self doesn't work for you, Miguel says, use another. If you don't think of yourself as a flower, then use something else as your metaphor. What matters is what matters to you, not to so-called influencers, thought leaders, advertisers. You get the idea. For now, don't worry about narcissism. It really is all about you. And that's okay. On to the next level. Level two, preference. Imagine a flower that closes when it engages a moment, and when the moment's over, is able to open up again as it detaches. Attach, detach. It closes, it opens. It closes, it opens when we attach ourselves to a moment, or we can say we engage a moment, and when the moment is over, we're able to detach, to disengage. Because my mind can think of all these possible directions, my mind can perceive the environment that's here, but also imagine all these possibilities that my mind can conjure up with my imagination, with my what-ifs and inspiration, if I like one of them, I'll say yes to that. And that's 
my preference. Out of a billion possibilities, this direction is my preference. I'm going to say yes to that. As I said no to the rest of it. When I make that decision, I'm going to use knowledge as an instrument that informs my choice, but I'm the one who makes the choice. I am aware that I am the authentic self, and I'm going to use knowledge as an instrument to inform my choice. Level three, identity. Imagine that flower closing in the moment of attachment. When the moment passes, though, I'm unable to open it up again. It stays there. We're now attaching ourselves to a moment that's no longer there. Now, mind you, all symbols, words, or symbols that we use in art are empty symbols whose definition is subject to agreement. That's why in art we can sit together and debate each other on what a certain work of art means. That's why words like we used before can change from culture to culture, one being a vulgarity and the other one an innocent term, and add more to the phrase of, I live in a red state. But in this case, we can even add to our identity that's a symbol. That's what an identity is, a symbol whose definition is subject to agreement. The dreamer planet only has one condition. I need to know who you are. Mind you, the dreamer planet simply is the shared dreams that we individuals construct to one another. If the main function of my mind is to dream, so when we come together, we create the dream of us. It is the dream that humanity has created, co-created together. And it could be the most harmonious dream or the perfect nightmare. Both exist at the same time. So an identity from this point of view is nothing wrong. It's actually almost natural because when we speak mind to mind, an identity is almost a icebreaker. But from the point of view of what we're talking about, we're still attaching ourselves to a moment, to an idea, to a choice, and using it to define who we are. So you can say, in order to know myself, the experience of being me is not enough. I need to know who I am in order for me to know who I am. What do I mean by that? I need to have an identity with a definition in order for me to know who I am. I am a Toltec. I could be a vegan, a Mexican-American, a father, a husband, a son. All these words can interpret and define who I am depending on who sees me. But in this case, my attachment to this identity is level three. I know myself through me, my definition of me, which is a slippery slope. Still there? Yeah, it's getting a bit abstract. But bear with him. Miguel's students at the Omega Institute workshop were wrapped, sitting on the floor in a semicircle in front of him, focused as he summarized the first levels and launched into the fourth of his five levels of attachment. 
Here's the thing at level three. At level one and two, at level one, it doesn't matter what you eat. The bond between you and I is the bond between you and I. At level two, if I choose, for example, to be vegan or Toltec, and you choose to follow Atkins and Deepak Chopra, <laughs> we'll still be friends, obviously. We, we can sit in the same table, and I'll eat my food, and you'll eat your food, and we're in harmony with one ourselves. At level three, the only thing that's changed is now I have a definition of myself. I'm either a vegan or a Toltec, and you are Atkins and Chopra. <laughs> the only thing that has really changed, yeah, the only thing that has really changed is just the identities we've used, but the bond is still the bond between you and I, is the truth. I'm not gonna judge you for eating the way you do or judge you for reading who you read or practicing who you've read. Neither will you. And if you do, I don't give you permission to do it. I'll just say thank you very much. But at level four, internalization, that's not gonna be the case. Now I'm gonna try to domesticate you to fit what I think you should be. How can you eat? meat. Think of the poor animal, you heartless fiend you. At that point, it's no longer, exactly, you're, and, you, and if you didn't like what I did, now you're going to domesticate me. No, I should be Atkins and forget about vegan, because and we clash. We begin domesticating each other. You can say the flower closes even more. And the ability to reopen itself becomes a little harder as we begin to internalize our identity. That's what level four is, internalization. It's the moment where I begin to domesticate myself with my identity, or you can say the model by which I domesticate myself. It's the moment where the four agreements turns into the four conditions of my personal freedom. It's when I begin to corrupt, not just Tom Miguel Reese and Deepak Chopra and Marianne Williamson and Wayne Dyer and Louis Hay and Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and psychology and psychiatry and Alcoholics Anonymous. Because all these traditions are meant to heal to love unconditionally, but we're so used to domestication that we will corrupt all of them in the same way that I just corrupted the four agreements and turning them into the four conditions, or I can corrupt veganism into just an instrument that goes beyond just the choice of nurturing and being in harmony with the planet. But now I'm going to use it as an instrument to say, I am right, you are wrong. Because if I am right, I'm worthy of love, and you are wrong, you're worthy of the punishment, and you better get hip with it, man. It's your choice. And we begin to domesticate each other. It's no longer at this moment, yeah, there you go. <laughs> at this moment, it's no longer about the information that informs my choice to be eating healthy or to be in harmony with the environment around me. Now it's an instrument that's gonna be created as a wedge between us. And I know people can ask, no, but isn't that good to educate other people? Well, there's a difference between educating someone and domesticating someone. Mm -hmm. 
There's a huge difference between the two. Education is sharing the knowledge with someone in order for, to persuade them to change that yes into a no. But when you domesticate them, you're trying to control their will. You're trying to control their perception. And if they give you permission, you can. And if they don't give you permission, it's a war. Who is going to win? Which leads us to level five, fanaticism. Where that flower completely distorts everything I see. Because that's the thing. The more it closes, the more it distorts. The more it corrupts. The more the mind becomes a filter. And distorts our perception. To the point where you can't see beyond the tips of your nose. You can say that as a child, to be childlike is to be in awe of the world. To be in awe of the environment we live in. To be in awe of ourselves. And we're constantly asking questions. We're constantly touching things. We're constantly savoring things. Putting things in our mouth. That's what kids are doing. That's why kids put things in their mouth to see what that tastes like. what that, that kind of thing. Ask questions, but eventually, once in a while, we, someone stopped, we stopped asking questions because someone made fun of us for it. So one of us says, oh, you don't know? Well, you should know. And, you know, they'll see you ask, you, you're dumb. And little by little, as we begin domesticated by our point of view, our perception about life slowly, slowly narrows down as our perception gets blinded so we can focus completely on what we want to see. Why? Because I'm not going to entertain anything that might disvalidate what I believe, especially if I've used it to love myself, especially if I've known that's who I am, especially how will I know that I'm worthy of love? How do I know that I am being righteous without it? I have to protect it. I have to change it, especially when we know that everything changes. Even meanings, definitions change. I've got to protect it. It has to stay the same. And when that begins to happen, we begin to corrupt it. It begins to stagnate. It no longer reflects life as is. It only becomes just something we're holding on to because we can't imagine life without it. That's why I say it's easier to see ego as a function rather than a concept. The function of ego is to keep the illusion alive. And in this case, the model by which we domesticate ourselves. That's the function of ego, also known as me. Who I am, what I am, from the point of view of the mind. A me that keeps changing. Change is both a constant in Don Miguel Ruiz Jr.'s teaching, and in his role as a Nawal, a shaman. He's a shapeshifter. So when you say that you're a shapeshifter, what do you mean by that? Well, in the old stories of shamans and Nawals, uh, they used to describe the, the human beings who are able to change from human form to animal form. So for the longest time, a lot of people really believe that, including myself when I was young. I really believed those stories that that was what a Nawal was. You know, you, you read Carlos Castaneda and things like that. 
And after a while, I've realized that it's just a metaphor, that my body has a form, but my mind doesn't have a form. It changes continuously. It shape and continually shape shifts based on the present moment. And also the energy that animates this body doesn't have a form there, but it's, it also shapes itself kind of like water to whatever container it holds it. In that regards, I'm a shapeshifter because I, one, I'm constantly evolving. I'm changing. The person I was when I was 18 or 24, 30, even 42 now doesn't exist. The, vers the current version of me exists. But the way I use it in the teachings I am a shapeshifter because all the people in my life see me dramatically different. They can all project onto me an image of who I am. My temptation is to believe them, to believe that projected image. And in fact, that's how I slowly began to domesticate myself in my, in my, my tradition calls the first attention. The first time I gave attention to anything that I began to believe those projected masks, of course. That's a father, mother, uh, siblings, family, friends. Those are the ones that I believed, especially when I was a teenager. Those ones was definitely a very strong one. And little by little, I began to let it go of it. I took off mask after mask after mask. And what I mean by that, what we refer to as a mask is what we know as an identity. This, it, what, they're one and the same. So when I say I'm a shapeshifter is that I've taken, taken off my mask of identifying myself with a symbol, with a definition. And what's left is just a living being that has the full capacity to go in any direction in life. Yet, as I say things, I don't control how people perceive me, which means that every person in my life will continue to perceive me as they, they want to see me. Some people will see my evolution. Some people will still see that guy who they broke up with or I broke up with a long time ago. Some people will see their old college friend, their old coworker. And, you know, even within that, sometimes my mom still sees that young child that she raised, which is quite endearing, to be honest with you. That's what I refer to as a shapeshifter in the form of the metaphor that existed of the old Nawal that changes into animal forms and things like that. I'm a human being that changes with every relationship that I am, I'm in. And here's the thing, I'm my authentic self with all of them. And that's Don Miguel Ruiz Jr.'s wish for you, too. We'll find that what our aim is, is to heal ourselves from the wounds that conditional love left in our life, to heal our wounded mind, our wounded heart, so that we can begin to enjoy life, enjoy being ourselves. Dropping in is a presentation of Omega Institute dedicated to awakening the best in the human spirit. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new ears find us. And to learn more about Omega, visit our website at eomega.org. I'm Karen Michelle. Dropping In is written and produced by me. Rob Harris is the executive producer. Catherine Stifter is the editor. And Scott Mueller is the composer and mix engineer. We'll be taking a break over the rest of the winter, back with season two of Dropping In this spring. Then we'll join composer, vocalist, performer Meredith Monk as she leads a group of strangers in creating a musical community. Hear the first woman president of a plumber's union 
showing other women how to fix their own toilets, sit in with veterans using yoga to deal with post-traumatic stress, and listen to the Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams Sensei giving her take on radical dharma and more. Meantime, visit us at eomega.org and listen to the episodes of Dropping In You Liked again. You're welcome to drop in anytime.